When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Five or six years ago, I was the new member at a Wharton board meeting, and I had been told, you've got to meet Jackie Reese's. She's amazing. As I'm scanning the room, secretly looking at name tags, in walks this woman dressed head to toe in Gucci. Not the century-old conservative kind of Gucci, but the kind right out of Vogue magazine. Well, she was cool, but where was Jackie? Of course, as it turns out, that was Jackie. Goldman Sachs investor, one of the most well-known and successful Silicon Valley operators, and now co-owner and CEO at Lead Bank, Jackie Reese's. It's crazy to think that it's only in recent history that women have been able to open a bank account, let alone own a bank. As recently as 1970, women could be turned away by lenders if they didn't have a male co-signer. So there are 4,236 FDIC-insured banks in the U.S., and according to Bankrate, there are only 13 women-owned banks, Lead Bank being one of them. Before we get to the interview, I want to make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out, and make sure to comment and like. Jackie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay. I got a lot to get to, but I got to start with your backstory. Tell me where you grew up. How did it all begin? I am from the unlikely place of Atlantic City, New Jersey, where I can't say was a hotbed of innovation or a hotbed of, of excellence around senior executives of companies. But I suppose I got lucky because I grew up in a very entrepreneurial environment. And most of the people that I went to school with in grade school, their family owned the local businesses, whether it was the restaurant, the dry cleaners, the medical supplies in the case of my family. And so my peers' families were part of the local industry. And so it taught me about entrepreneurialism at a really young age because I didn't see the world through the lens of a nine to five ordinary course job. Everyone's parents like owned their own companies. And so therefore you just assumed that you worked whenever you needed to work. You had all kinds of creative jobs. And I think it changed my point of view about opportunities. Changed it how? What do you mean? Well, I didn't think of a lens of going and getting a job and needing to go work at someone's company and thinking through a nine to five white collar construct. I thought of it through the lens of what company should I start? 
and also the lens of customer service and 24-7 support for a customer-centric company. And so it taught me a few lessons about how to operate a business, even when seeing it at its most localized way of growing up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And so that is really different than the environment at Goldman Sachs, where I went after I graduated from University of Pennsylvania, where at Goldman Sachs, you worked with these massive multinational companies with world-renowned executive teams and founders, and you're watching business happen in a way that is at another end of extreme of excellence. But it's a very corporate existence, and you're always working for shareholders, working for other stakeholders versus necessarily being the majority stakeholder yourself. And that is an extreme bipolar view of understanding the lens of business. And so I did get very lucky by going to Penn. I went to Wharton undergrad. The one weird thing of going to Wharton undergrad is that everyone just goes to Wall Street. It's kind of like a thing, particularly when we were there, like, you just assumed you were going to go work on Wall Street. It was almost like a factory. and Exactly. Right? Crazy. Yeah, vocational training. Yes, trade school. Trade school. Yes, exactly. And so I didn't even know that was a thing when I went there. I just got lucky that that's the only school I wanted to go to, and that's where I went. And so, but I, by the way, I ran a bunch of businesses as a teenager, and I put myself through school largely. Like what kind of business? Well- I ran an ad specialty company that helped make Greek goods for fraternities and sororities, but then I expanded it and sold stuff to the bookstore. This was before all that stuff got institutionalized like it is today, where there are like real companies actually making that stuff. But I made Greek drinking mugs for all the fraternities. <laughs> and it was enough profit that I really could support myself in a pretty significant way. I built a taxi business to take people to and from the airport. I had my sorority sisters work for me in order to do taxi runs with a few of us had cars at school. So I did that. I was always working and always trying to do something in order to support myself. And then Goldman was amazing. Goldman and Penn basically taught me excellence, teamwork, find people who are amazing at what they do and and learn from them. It taught me how to open the aperture of my worldview. I never would have realized what was out there on a global scale had I not gone to Penn, had I not worked at Goldman Sachs. It really, both of those institutions changed my life and I'll forever be grateful to both of them. And some of my best friends I went to undergrad with. And in both cases, I run into people from Penn and from Goldman in almost every facet of my life. And so I got very lucky in finding these incredible institutions. And then I worked on Wall Street for a long time, didn't love it, probably spent 20 years in private equity investing. And then I got lucky and moved to tech. And I worked at Yahoo as the chief development officer and then Square, which is really you know, another gift to me. You know, I had an amazing relationship at Square and helped building that company. I know you were really instrumental and sort of the central figure involved in Square Capital, which was really a huge driver for Square. Can you tell us, for people who don't know, Square Capital's mission and how you built it? Yeah. So, and it, it brings me to banking as well. Square 
When we took Square public, it had a $3 billion market cap. And you think about that in the context today where tech companies go public and they are worth tens of billions of dollars. But we still were a smallish company, about a thousand employees, $3 billion market cap. But the company really changed how payments are taken. And Jack created the white dongle that's now iconic that really enabled mobile payments to take place. He was the first person to do it, and he built a juggernaut in Square. And Jack is Jack Dorsey, who is the yes. iconic figure of tech who started Twitter. And, and Square. And Square. And Square. Yeah. Right. And Square. And did both for a while. So I know you were very close with Jack. He's What is that like to work for that kind of founder? What did that teach you? He's one of the best listeners I've ever seen. He will just absorb information, listen, and then focus on the things that truly matter. I think he's a really creative and truly wonderful person. So I really enjoyed learning from him. He's an amazing hirer. He often has the most incredible teams. The team that we took Square Public with was an incredible group of people many of whom I'll be friends with for my entire life. But, you know, we had this payments business and people saw this juggernaut of payments. And then we started building out software components to that business. And so the lending business was one of them. And that's Square Capital that you referenced. And lending is an incredibly profitable business. I mean, it was a huge proportion of Square's earnings at a point in time. I don't track it today, so I couldn't comment. But it basically enables small businesses to get small dollar immediate loans. And for small businesses around the country, the access to capital is one of the things that holds them back in being able to grow. And so creating and building a product around lending for small businesses really changes how millions of companies can finance themselves. So it really changes the architecture of local communities. So if you're a food truck and your coffee machine breaks on a Saturday morning, you can get a $1,000 loan instantly. And for many companies around the country, that's game-changing for them. And so we had immediate product market fit. It started as a Hack Week project even before I got there, and then I built it into a lending business with a team that actually still works with me today at LEAD. Uh, many of them came with me. But we saw the need for something that really didn't exist in the country because of the way the loan product worked immediately with small dollars and the way it was deducted from the daily sales of a point of sale system and immediately paid back. There were some tweaks to that product that took something like lending that is as old as history. You know, loans have been paid in barter and goats and beads for as long as time, right? But the idea that you can use your point of sale software to then get a loan, to then pay it back with flexibility was a pretty novel concept in 2015 and 2016. It's interesting. I mean, it was groundbreaking and yet now it's it's more commonplace. But the other thing that I thought was so fascinating, and one time I was lucky enough to visit you at Square, which is like something out of central casting for Silicon Valley sitcom. Right. Uh, you know, everyone's sitting around on their giant rubber ball and seat. <laughs> and uh, yes. And I asked you, how do you know if these loans are good? And you described to me how much data you had on each creditor 
and how you were going to know before anybody else whether that loan was good. And it's interesting because we, in COVID, we saw the benefits of that as well at an extreme way. And we were able to help a lot of governors and the president and treasury in order to help them because we had some of the best data science in the country to be able to understand projected revenues of small businesses in every zip code in the country. But the interesting dynamic of lending, which is really weird, is we've always had this bias towards walking into a bank and making sure that a bank can issue loans. And I do think that's great for people. And I see that I own a bank in Kansas City. I'm sitting in Kansas City right now. But there's an additional part of that market which isn't served. And if you think about lending, how do you know people in a local community? You see them in your club, you see them in restaurants, you see them in connected graphs of user relationships. People know each other. That's how a lot of loans at a bank happen. You know, we do a lot of work at Lead Bank, the bank I currently own, with three co-founders who all worked at Square. And that lending happens through nonprofits, through community groups. But you meet people through very close concentric circles. That does not serve the entire community. Now, if you're a food truck, if you're a tiny little restaurant, if you're a dry cleaner, you might not be connected to those concentric circles. And so what Square helped build and really scale, largely before almost anyone else, was the idea of algorithmic lending so that you could use payments data to lend to small businesses and you could see what credit cards are taken, what quality of credit cards, how many in a day, what hours are those credit cards taken, how consistent are those payments. And so you're able to see data that enables you to underwrite in a way that is so differentiated from traditional lending, which looks at historic tax returns. And it really turned risk-based lending on its head and transformed the small dollar lending market in a way that is so extreme. Very few companies can do the same type of lending without that type of real-time transactional data, which is so deep and so useful for consumer and business underwriting that you see a lot of success with companies well beyond Square. You see it with Stripe, with Intuit, with tax software, accounting software, even without naming specific companies. There are so many that have data like this that are able to use it to the effect of underwriting that it really has changed the way lending happens in the United States. And it doesn't stop banks like Lead Bank from lending to the community. We still serve an incredible purpose where we operate. And I'm on the Community Depository Advisory Committee of the Kansas City Federal Reserve now. And we meet with small community banks all across our region at the Kansas City Federal Reserve. And you listen to the stories that the CEOs of these other banks tell and how they are serving their community. And I know what we do in Kansas City. And so there is a purpose for both. But I think they serve different sizes of the market and different needs in the market to extraordinary effect. And so it's been cool to witness and cool to be a part of building communities. I don't know that we can overestimate the impact that it had on Square, the company, which, by the way, is now called Block. So you were there at the very beginning. You built this incredible engine for Square. Now, Square stock went absolutely berserk. And stepping away for a moment from your job as running Square Capital, how did that feel as a significant owner of Square stock? 
coming from a background where money was tight growing up, it sounded like. How did that change your perspective, if at all? So I think if you were a shareholder of Square from the IPO forward, you did very well. Even today, where the stock is retrenched pretty significantly, I think Square has created an extraordinary amount of wealth and success for any of its shareholders. If I step back and think about what it's like to be an owner of a company versus an employee, there's an intrinsic, incredible feeling about having control of a company and being able to build something. And I'm more motivated by being able to build. Like I'm incredibly proud of what we built at Square and who I worked with and how I truly believe I worked with incredible customers and incredible colleagues. And we had incredible shareholders. And I see that across tech today. Like I'm on the board of a firm. I'm on the board of Nubank. I look at their colleagues and how they feel as owners as well. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're at a company like a firm or Nubank or Square or you own a restaurant. I think the pride associated to what you're doing and what you're delivering is just so fun and so incredible. It's the thing that motivated me to leave and go buy my own bank with three co-founders and want to go build my own business. Like I am sitting in Kansas City and the feeling that I have when I walk in and I see our frontline teller group and I walk through our office and I welcome people into our office, I love it. Tonight I'm going out to dinner with two local folks who are taking me out to dinner so that we could talk about what's going on in the Kansas City real estate market. So much fun. It's like I get an incredible amount of pride in being an owner of a company. So I want to get more into Lead Bank. First, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove Podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. And we're back with Jackie Reeses, among other things, mainly now CEO of Lead Bank. All right, so Jackie, I know I have heard you say that as a child you wanted to be bank teller Barbie. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> It is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. I do. I, I don't know if you had a Barbie bank set up as well, but just the idea of it now, particularly where you ended up, is so funny. It wasn't <laughs> the building. It was the convertible and the drive through I had the pink convertible. <laughs> you had a drive through bank? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. I You're used so ahead to be of your time. the bank teller and the Barbie convertible, the hot pink convertible would pull up to the bank. I think because my mom was so focused on needing money that it stuck in my head that the bank was this vehicle for securing safety. And I watched the Partridge family. I think that's the show with Davy, Davy Jones, David Cassidy. And so he was my customer in the pink convertible with Barbie. But that is the story. And it's actually legitimately true. <laughs> Embarrassing, <laughs> but true. But it's hilarious given where you ended up. Who knew you were ending up going to be actually bank teller Jackie? Yes. Okay. So you had this big idea to buy a bank, which is, it's no small feat. Just the regulatory hurdles, the bureaucracy, all of it is, I mean, this was a multi-year process. Yes. And now you're there. So what is your grand vision? How do you think you're going to change banking? So I do think we're going to change banking and I think we're going to make it better for people in the United States in ways that they see and ways that they don't see. Our vision is to build banking infrastructure so that we could embed financial services in almost any product. And you can engage with a banking service in context of where you're at. If you are buying a tractor, you can buy a tractor and finance it online or finance it at a dealership really easy with a few clicks. If you're at a Chiefs football game and you want to buy something that's too expensive, you can use buy now, pay later to finance it over multiple transactions and have you know your shirt paid for on a firm in, in four transactions that are easy and in context of you being in your Chiefs NFL football app. And so our goal is to enable you to do that no matter where you are. And we work with fintech companies, we work with consumer companies as our clients that they could build primitives around banking. By primitive, I mean wiring, ACH money movement, checkouts, bank accounts, lending programs, secured cards, unsecured cards, all these instruments that you don't really think of. You just, you think of them as the daily utility that you have in your life. You have a credit card in your wallet. Your company uses ramp and you pay your expenses on ramp. You pay your rent with flex. There are all these dynamics around spending devices, lending devices, bank accounts, and you just think of them as how they serve your life. Well, today they're very constrained in where you can transact. It's gotten a lot better in the last five to 10 years, where now you can use all those kinds of products in different contexts, but there's still so much room in order to do that in so many different ways that we are helping these companies build the infrastructure to do that very arcane. 
But that's really what our goal is. And it really will transform the way consumers and businesses interact with financial products in their lives. Give us an example of something that will be very different in the not so distant future that we don't really focus on today. Companies have gotten great at revenue. So if you're a small company, you probably have a point of sale system. You use Clover, you use Square, you use Toast, you use Stripe or Shopify. So you have this whole group of things that help revenue become easy. Expenses though today are really hard for small companies. So when money gets paid out and expenses are paid, the systems are like, accounting software, tax software, maybe you're still writing checks, maybe you're paying invoices. It's still really sloppy on the expense side. There are companies that are starting to innovate on that, like Ramp and Brex and Melio. And so you're seeing these companies start to make it easy where money can go out and be accounted for in a more easy way. But even today in 2024, it's a hot mess. And so I think five years from now, you're going to see that evolve much more fluidly so that even the expense side of how companies are run are much easier and are more organized and holistic so that checks, invoices, accounts payable, accounts receivable are all more automated. That's an example of something that you don't really think about until you really pay attention. Like, wait, how do you think my restaurant pays for supplies and pays for employees? It's still really sloppy, unfortunately. And piecemeal. Completely piecemeal, fragmented, and it's on its way to be automated. But point by point, these things weren't able to be accomplished without infrastructure being better. And we're in the infrastructure side. We provide the underlying infrastructure that are the rails to a lot of those companies to enable them to connect in a highly compliant way into the financial system. And so that's what we do. And then we also have a very localized client business in Kansas City. We work with a lot of real estate developers and consumers in Kansas City. We have about 3,000 customers here. You could walk in our bank. Right after this podcast, you could walk in and use our ATM, cash a check. We have localized services to folks in Kansas City. I love our Kansas City clients. They're really good people, really good people. So it's interesting. I think about, I look at banks a lot and I think about you as this relatively small upstart, yet something that has the potential to really upend banking. And I know Jamie Dimon has said one of his biggest regrets in his career was not buying Square, that they should have been Square. So do you see yourself as having the potential to disrupt banking again. I do, actually. And this is this might be very abstract. Today, banking happens in a very constrained way. We're opening it up so that it could happen anywhere. But I think the next 10 years with infrastructure players like us really changing the way that fintechs and consumer companies are able to embed banking in their apps, I think we're going to open it up and really make it easy for people to transact with banking. And so while you used to have to go to your Chase app or go into a branch, that won't exist in the ordinary course that it might have 10 years ago. And even today, it it still does today. I think you're going to have your paycheck going to different kinds of companies. Payouts are going to be 
different. The companies that you integrate with are going to be very different as a consumer and as a business. And so I think JP Morgan's always going to be a machine. I mean, they're the largest bank in the, I think the world, and definitely in the United States by a country mile. They're probably bigger than everyone else combined. But I think there's huge room for us, given the scale of the entire banking industry. I think there's about $25 trillion of assets in the banking system. And we have a huge opportunity to help companies build banking into their own infrastructure. And so I don't think we'll disrupt JP Morgan, but I do think we will certainly create opportunities for companies to have banking in their own systems. I mean, I, I admire JP Morgan. They run a balance sheet and compliance in an incredible way. When we went to hire our CFO, we hired a CFO from Wall Street. We hired the ex-CFO of the post-bankruptcy Lehman Brothers, a woman by the name of Chris Dixon. And she managed a $130 billion balance sheet. And so we wanted someone who understood the complexity of the most complicated Wall Street environments to work at LEAD. We're now one of the largest women-owned banks in the United States. I think we're in the top five, top two, to be honest with you, just mm -hmm. given our scale. It's, it's amazing. It's not part of our business plan. Like we're not serving women only, but I take a lot of pride in who our executive team is, who our board is, who our company is. We're an incredibly diverse organization. And so I feel pretty lucky to work with amazing women, amazing people at LEAD. And so we certainly will be and remain one of the biggest women-owned banks in the United States for years to come. Let me just give you a comment that someone told me, a reliable source, <laughs> that people who have worked for Jackie before will go to the ends of the earth to work with Jackie again. Oh. Why is that? <laughs> That's really nice. I, you're going to make me cry. I didn't say it was true. <laughs> exactly. No, it is true. I know it is true. But tell me, why, why is that? So I want to not that smart and not being that smart. I mean, I'm like your average above average intelligence. And I we can we can debate that at a later time. But OK, I'll accept what you're saying. It's not about your being smarter than everyone. I else. take that as a weakness. And therefore, I need people who are smarter than me to cover my blind spots. And I want to listen to people who are smarter than me in their field of expertise even if it doesn't matter senior or junior, anyone around me, it could be a client, it could be someone who works for me, it could be someone who you know just shows up in my orbit. If someone is smart and insightful on something, I want to listen to it. And I think that means that I have a humility and a desire to work with people who take a point of view and are very smart. And I want to create an amazing team because I don't see myself as being able to solve all the problems myself because of my own, what I consider flaws or inherent weaknesses in my own capabilities and my own intellect. And so the people I work with are incredibly smart, very gritty. They're can do, get it done, scrapper kind of people. They all operate with humility and a sense of humor so that we could build a cohesive team, even if it's a really nerdy sense of humor. We want a cohesive team. And in a funny way, I saw the benefits of Goldman Sachs. Like Goldman was this incredible team when it was private. And when I was in private equity, I didn't think we were the optimal team, the optimal trusted team. And I took bits of watching that and tried to hone at places like Square 
how do you go build an incredible team? And so my team at Square, which was lending and banking, we were like the Teamsters. We felt we had like a unique culture. We got together every Thursday and broke bread together. I mean, I mean that literally. Every Thursday we got tartine bread from San Francisco and incredible <laughs> butter and oh, that salt. literally. literally. Okay. It was like a thing. I, I can't, one of our engineers started it and we used to sit, have beers and wine every Thursday and like break bread. And we built this really incredible culture. And even now, like at LEAD, my head of people and I were chatting about like ritual, like what ritual are we going to build around how we operate at LEAD? And they're like food. There's, we do a chili cook-off for Kansas City. And, you know, we're going to create like a annual chili cook-off event where all the offices kind of do a holistic competition around their own chili recipes. And, you know, we're going to do fun stuff around football. And so, like, you create these rituals and build environments for your team in a way that makes people feel like they're part of a team, they're seen, they're heard. Doesn't matter who they are, if they have a point of view, you're willing to listen. And I think that's what makes a really well-run team. Now, having said that, we're also really performance-driven. And so I hire for excellence and performance. And we are a pretty demanding organization as it relates to performance. And so even though we're humble and we listen to everybody and we want to hear a point of view. We're not a consensus-driven organization. Someone is responsible for taking a decision. There's one responsible person and you're held to account for that. Doesn't mean you can't make mistakes, but people want to work with excellent people and they want to work in an environment of excellence. And if you're not up to the task, this is not the best place for you. And so both things can be true, that we're performance-driven and we listen and are humble and want a team to operate well together. And so that's the way we operate the company. And I think the people who've worked with me through multiple companies have enjoyed that kind of environment and feel like they're a part of a winning team. Mm -hmm. So let me just touch on your book, Self-Made Boss, which is a sort of a how-to guide for small businesses. And one of the things you talk about is telling them to expect this sort of emotional volatility that goes with starting a small business. You are all in. You're not an employee. Everything is all in. How do you use that same advice for Lead Bank? I wrote the book Self-Made Boss with a woman named Lauren Weinberg, who today is the CMO of Peloton. And she was the CMO of Square. And we saw the pain struggles of small businesses. And they're 30 million of them in the United States. And they really make up every neighborhood and they make your neighborhood special. I think we all felt that in COVID, how important it was that we treat our restaurant owners with respect and our gym owners and our hair salons. And so I think when you watch that struggle and you feel the pain of these people whose livelihood is rolled up in their business, it makes you more attuned to the emotional trauma of how hard it is to own your own company. So I went and bought a bank in Kansas City. And I do feel as a co-owner of this bank that I sweat the small stuff. I clean the coffee pot. I, you know, I range us from cleaning the coffee pot to, you know, meeting with the head of the Fed. Dealing with the FDIC. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is my week. I'm literally, I have a board meeting this week. We have three new amazing board members and two board members who've been with us for a little while. So I'm on pins and needles about, you know, making sure they have a good entree into lead bank. You know, I have a meeting with the FDIC to just do a check-in. I have meetings with clients. I'm having dinner with real estate developers and folks in Kansas City. And I'm going out with my team tomorrow night for dinner. So I have a full full schedule. And I do feel the drama of what it's like to own something at higher highs and lower lows. And I think that's just the way it is as a business owner, where it's hard to be more measured when it's all on your shoulders, no matter what. It's a pretty lonely spot to be in as a founder and CEO of a company. And I'm a pretty measured person by behavior and by composition, but I still feel and sweat the highs and the highs and the lows. And oftentimes entrepreneurs have personal guarantees. They've committed themselves personally to customers and therefore they really do feel the emotional responsibility. And I think as any business owner, you're just going to feel that no matter what. It doesn't matter how big your company is. I mean, at this point, our company is not so small. And I still feel the emotional drama of the highs that are high and the lows that are lows. But I think it's fun, actually. And you just have to have the sturdiness of institution in order to make sure it doesn't kill you. Because uh, it's pretty stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wake up in the middle of the night thinking about, thinking about work all the time. I believe it. I Okay, I got to go to an, something this, maybe you did this to address the stress. You and a bunch of friends bought Grindr, the gay dating app. What was that about? So we did. There are seven of us who bought Grindr in 2020. Grindr is a gay dating app. It's really used by a significant proportion of the gay community. And we were very lucky to have the opportunity to buy it in 2020. It was owned by a Chinese company. The United States had asked this Chinese company to divest it. But in any event, they had to sell it. And we were able to buy this company and go in and improve the way that it operated. There's a guy named Jeff Bonfort who became its CEO. And Jeff had worked with me at Yahoo and he saw ways to improve the product, increase performance, reduce ads, and really change the way the product is performing for the community. And so I felt very lucky to be a part of the community. It's an incredible group. We had a really fun time making the product better, listening to customer feedback. And I was happy to be a shareholder. Having said that, I did it as an investment. I didn't work there. Jeff was the CEO. And so I took the opportunity to do it as an investment. And if I could help them in any way, I obviously would. I've done a few all hands. I've talked about their payments, the way they dealt with payments, looked at some of their payments contracts. I've helped them on some of their ads contracts because of relationships. But I was more of a lucky shareholder as opposed to a executive. It was fun. It was a fun project to do, but it was definitely a side project. I remember reading that going, oh, okay, interesting. It's, you've had a really amazing, interesting career. I have a question for you. I know you're a mom, three kids. Do you have any different message for your daughter and son? Yeah. So I have one girl at Penn, 
which is great. She's about to live in the house I lived in 30 years ago, which is pretty surreal for me. I have a daughter who's applying to colleges and a son who's in high school. He goes to boarding school. And, you know, for my kids, I want them to understand the value of hard work. And me as a mom, I think the one thing I'm thankful for is that I never opted out of working. And I never psyched myself out of a job because I thought it was going to be too hard with kids. I always took a point of view that I would just get there when I got there. And if, it, you know, I'd figure it out at the time. And I'm very lucky. My kids have a lot of pride in, you know, how I work and how I operate. And I think at the same time, they've been able to see the value of hard work and the value of making choices. I always tried to come to the most significant events that my kids had and be there for plays, for school conferences, for things that they participated in, sports events. I couldn't go to all of them, but I definitely went to most and the ones that were most important. I chose not to go to things that they didn't see. So for example, I didn't go to PTA meetings because my kids largely wouldn't see that. And so I made prioritization choices about how to do things with my kids and how to teach them how to be involved and how to juggle hard work and how to always be there, even if it meant waking up at five in the morning and going to sleep after them and being a little bit tired. But they saw how happy I was and they see how happy I am now. And I think they learn from that. I've been criticized by them at various points in their life. Mom, you didn't come to my football game. <laughs> of course. Right. Of course. I think we can never win. It doesn't matter whether we right. are always there. I think you went to every single game. It didn't win. Yes. No matter. Yeah. Having said that, they know I was there for the things that mattered. And I'm always there now 24 seven if they need me. And I think that kind of relationship has been pretty important. I wouldn't have wanted to opt out of work. I wouldn't have wanted to opt out of taking the next promotion, moving to wherever I needed to move. I just figured out a way to make it work with my family. And honestly, one of the things I say to people when I meet with women who ask me like, well, I don't know if I should do that because I need to get here, here, and here as a milestone by X amount of time. I was like, stop trying to pre-plan that. Like, just do the best you can, do what you want, and don't try to pre-plan these events in your life because things will always come up that are unpredictable. And you're better off always going for it. Do the thing that you can always go for if you're trying to build your career and then figure out the kids. There's never a good time to have kids. There's never a good time to figure this stuff out. That is the most inconvenient thing you can do in your life. Yes is to take on a commitment forever. But right, so you, you can't wait for the perfect time. There isn't there one. There isn't one. You just got to jump in. And you just have right. to make it work and figure it out day by day without opting out of putting yourself in the most attractive position to kind of get to your end game goals. My kids are great. I maneuver my schedule around to go to events for them and to see them. They're my heart and soul. Like I wouldn't want life without them. They're like the greatest thing ever. And so I feel blessed that I have a good family, even though honestly, they're so mad at me all the time. I mean, it's like typical family <laughs> life. I wish it I wish it looked incredible all the time, but in any any given day, I've got someone mad at me for something. Yeah, I hear you. I know what that's like. <laughs> I do the best you I do can. can do. Yeah, I know. And then when they need you, they forget that you're mad. Yeah. And, that, and you forget that, you know, it's fine. It's fine. All right. We're going to have to take a quick break and then we'll come back with the lightning round. 
Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with the lightning round. Okay, here we go. Just would you rather, the only challenge is you can't think about the answer, just first thing that pops into your head. Okay. California or New York or Kansas City? California. Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey? Taylor Swift. Did you go to the concert with your daughter? Yes, of course. Of course. Who didn't? And I <laughs> yeah. go to Chiefs games. I haven't yet. And I go to Chiefs games all the time. Perfect. Okay. I know the answer to this, but I got to ask it. Would you rather only wear neon orange for the rest of your life or black? Black. Actually, I thought you were going to go with the neon orange. Yeah. No, I like black. Okay. I like, I think it's the New Yorker in me. Okay. Would you rather have growth at all costs or profitability? Profitability. Work from home or work in the office? Work in the office. Me too. Why? Why would you say that? I I understand it. I think it helps build a company culture. And Uh there are so many serendipitous ways to create fun ideas, do fun things, enjoy the company of others in the office. I think it just makes your company better. So I really, really Mm -hmm. like to spend time with people. Like I, I really feel it for us too. I think it makes us more unified that we work in an office. We have the flexibility that you also can not come in, but people largely Mm -hmm. come into our office in order to benefit from building relationships with one another. Um, Okay. Would you rather have fame or fortune? Fortune. Fix a giant problem or never have had the problem at all? Oh, fix a giant problem. That's like fun for me. Catnip. (laughs) Would you rather be overdressed or underdressed? Overdressed. Absolutely. Uh Um, The Big Short or The Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) The Big Short. Okay. Neither, to be honest. Like, neither. Both are quirky. Okay. Uh, Both are quirky. All right. How about the Barbie movie then? If I throw that in Barbie movie or Oppenheimer? Oh, Barbie. I thought Barbie was one of the best (laughs) movies I've seen in a long time. Like if you really unpack the movie, everyone should see it. It's extraordinary. It's brilliant. And any man who doesn't watch that movie is missing 
learning a lot and understanding a lot about women and the patriarchal society we live in. I just think it's an incredible, incredible movie. Yeah. And I mean, for Barbie Bank Teller, I'm sure it was kind of a full circle moment for you. I did dress up and go with my kids. We had a really good time. Oh, you did? You wore the whole pink Barbie thing? Excellent. Excellent. All right. I had, in getting ready for this interview, I heard someone ask you a very interesting question that I'm going to ask you again. That question is, what have you changed your mind about in the last year? In the last year? Well, the one thing I'm fascinated with is the impact of psychedelics, psychedelic drugs. I'm a really nerdy person. I barely drink. Like, I'm not a partier at all. But I read Michael Pollan's book a few years ago for, we had an executive book club at Square. And I read Michael Pollan's book on the impact of psychedelics. And I'm blown away by it. It really has had more of an impact in my life than almost anyone in changing my mind about thinking openly about something that I otherwise would have completely said, like, what are you crazy? And so I think it'll be amazing for depression and PTSD. They're already seeing research. Doctors are seeing incredible research on that, but it's got such a bad rap. And I think the more we can plow into research on like ketamine and psychedelics, I think there's something there. And then I I also am amazed by all these weight loss medications and what they might do for addiction and weight loss and Mm -hmm. for the obesity problem. And so- Mm -hmm. And healthcare. And healthcare. And- I think I've changed my mind on being willing to take drugs in order to fix a problem like that. Like I used to probably be judgmental about it. Like I I don't really do anything. And I'm like, wait, why? If people need something, why shouldn't they go take it? And I completely changed my point of view about all of it and understanding the pretty foundational impact all these things are having on society. I'm kind of blown away by it, actually. So that's... That's a, not a short okay. answer, but I'm amazed with but what's it's a being good done. Yeah. Okay. Last two questions. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? An investment can be very broad, meaning it doesn't mean an actual investment. It could be a class or anything. Yeah. I think two of the best investments, I'll go there. One is teaching my kids good values. Best investment I think I've ever made. And then economically going and working at Square. It's hard to replicate that in life. I'm sure Lead Bank, we're doing incredibly well. I have a lot of confidence in us, but until it happens, it ain't happened. And so probably my kids and Square and my worst investment, I don't know, I have so many. It's hard to it's hard to count. Yeah. I'm I don't think I'm a very good investor, to be honest with you. I'd say Really? Yeah, like I don't understand market timing very well. And so I, mm-hmm. I'd say just foundationally, I'm a, I'm a bad market investor. Okay. I agree with you on market timing. I think it's a, a sort of a bit of a fool's errand. All right. That's all we have time for. Jackie, thank you so much for spending the time with me. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. And thank you so much to Jackie Reeses for sharing how she created a modern bank for modern founders. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week.